everyone, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Liontree. For more insightful content, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Kindred Cast. I'm Alex Michael, co-head of Lion Tree Growth here at Lion Tree. We have a terrific guest today on Kindred Cast, Mr. Ben Sherwood. Ben has a fascinating story, which we're excited to share with you today. And I'm just so thrilled he could join us. A quick background on Ben. He is a master storyteller, an experienced operator. He's a highly respected executive and entrepreneur. And his latest adventure and endeavor is as founder and CEO of Mojo, a new venture-backed startup in the youth sports space. It recently launched just this past February. And Mojo is a mobile app that makes coaching more enjoyable for parents, playing more fun for kids, and youth sports more magical for everyone. This latest Endeavor Mojo was informed by Ben's experiences overseeing the television business of the Walt Disney Company. And from 2014 to 2019, Ben was co-chairman of Disney Media Networks and president of Disney ABC Television Group. In that capacity, he also served as co-chair of the Hulu Board and co-chair of the A&E Networks Board. He's also an award-winning journalist and best-selling novelist and served as president of ABC News from 2010 to 2014. There is a lot to learn from Ben. Ben, welcome to KindredCast. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure to be here. What a great idea. Whoever thought of doing KindredCast was a genius. Ben, thank you for saying that. I won't take the credit, but I will. But uh, we are very excited about KindredCast. This is like our hundred and second show or something. It's really been a phenomenon and We've had wonderful guests throughout, and you're the latest in that long line of great executives. So thank you so much for joining. If anyone's followed myself on LinkedIn, but also some of Lion Tree's transactions, sports certainly, they've centered on youth sports. It is an area that we find incredibly compelling and one that we think is ripe for a lot of evolution as well as disruption. And I feel like your company, Mojo, is at the center of that, which is bringing youth media coaching into the 21st century via an app. We'll get to that. But Ben, just because I did such a poor job of giving your bio, (laughs) perhaps you could just summarize, because I think there are so many lessons here for parents, like your parents created two Rhodes Scholars, you and your sister, correct? Correct. She's an impressive person, which we can get to uh, later or not at all, depending on what you want. You have done all these amazing things, but Ben, maybe run through quick. Give the highlight reel, as someone said, one of giving backgrounds, give the highlight reel of your career here so people can understand this amazing evolution. And I'll ask some questions in there. Maybe we'll start there. Thanks, Alex. Highlight reel. Quickly, I was a journalist for most of my career in and out of ABC News and had the privilege of starting there when I was 25, after finishing up in graduate school, worked at ABC News, left, came back and ran Good Morning America for a time, left, came back and was the president of the news division, 
and then moved up to run the Disney Media Network. So that's all of the television properties of the Walt Disney Company. Did that for about five years. And then I left a couple of years ago to pursue this entrepreneurial path, area of great passion, which is where you and I met right at the beginning of the journey. And I'm grateful to you and to Liontree for all of your help and support along the way. Embarked upon a journey to bring the magic back to youth sports. I had coached sports for 12 years with my two sons, four different sports. And I felt that it had to be easier. It had to be less stressful. There had to be a better way that didn't rely on PDFs from 1994 explaining to you how to run a practice or outdated materials from different leagues. I thought that you had to be able to marry technology. You had to be able to marry great content. You had to be able to put all of that together and basically make coaching youth sports and being involved as a parent easier and more fun and enjoyable for the parents. Definitely more fun for the kids and the whole experience better for everyone. And that's what Mojo is. It's an app that basically takes the stress and hassle out of coaching and parenting in youth sports and helps you first with soccer and then eventually with every sport, make it a lot more fun for moms and dads and volunteers to go on that journey from when a kid is about four till about when the kid is about 14, that 10-year period, which is that magical time. That's what we're really focused on. And I learned a lot about that in my time at Disney, where I helped oversee the Disney channels around the world. And in that experience, I saw how moms and dads just want trusted resources, the best entertainment, the best quality for their kids, and they'll spend a lot. And that's sort of the thesis about Mojo, which is there is no dominant family sports brand that helps moms and dads and families have a joyful experience from start to finish. That's what we're about. So Ben, give me the use case. So again, it's Mojo, M-O-J-O. It's an app. And what am I doing? Walk me through this. For anyone who's just hearing about Mojo for the first time, tell me about the use case here. Sure. So my partner, Reed Schaffner, co-founder of the company and his tech team have built what the Webby Awards celebrated as the best sports app of 2021. We just found out last week. Not bad for a startup that's been on the market for 98 days. And here's what happens. Alex decides he's going to coach his daughter in youth soccer. She's four. Alex gets the app, downloads it from the app store. It's free. And you enter in the number of girls you're coaching, their age, their experience level, and your experience level. That's it. Simple onboarding process. And boom, we generate your first practice for you, say a 30-minute practice, say a 45-minute practice with videos made by Mandalay Sports Media. So top producers in the sports world who made the Michael Jordan documentary, they produced with us the first few hundred activities and videos. So you get to watch each activity in your practice, a short video that explains what you're supposed to do, what it's supposed to look like, some coaching tips for you. It takes all the stress out of coaching. You've got great activities that are proven to work with four-year-old girls. And boom, that's your first practice. You then tell us how that practice went. You give us thumbs up, thumbs down on some of the activities. Did the girls like them or not? And then you can choose to have us generate your next practice for next week. Or you can say, you know what? I'd like to work us a little bit on dribbling because I noticed that the girls couldn't really dribble. And that's what I want to focus on. And so you can pull up a set of galleries of different practices that we've created about dribbling, some of them curated by U.S. Youth Soccer, our partner in soccer, the largest sports league in the United States, 3 million kids, 300,000 coaches, some of them curated by the world's best youth soccer coaches. And you can pick a practice, and that practice, again, same thing, lays out for you 
equipment you need, videos to watch about how to do each of the activities, and then guaranteed to work. So we just got the first results of the first 10,000 coaches who've used the app. We surveyed them. 82% of them say that the Mojo makes coaching easier and less stressful. 83% of them say that the experience is more fun for everyone, and it's working. Coaches love this. It takes all of the planning and all the prep and all the hassle out, and it just delivers a really great experience on the field. That was the pain point, Ben, right? That as a coach, frankly, much like parenting, no one gives you a manual to do these things. You, you have to rely on your own intuition or the bad examples you've seen from your own coaches or your own parents. You essentially go to YouTube or you find some book on Amazon and you, you try to be a coach and you suffer from not really knowing what to do. And the kids likely suffer from having someone who doesn't really know what they're doing. And this takes that all out of it. Boom. So the pain points, you identified a few of them. Let me break a few of those out. Pain point number one is that there's no manual. You're left on your own. You get told or voluntold that you're going to be coaching your girls or boys or whatever age you want to be involved. And then you're sort of left to your own devices. You look on YouTube, you search how to kick a soccer ball. 750 million results come up, literally, how to kick a soccer ball. The number one result on YouTube on how to kick a soccer ball is some guy named Matt in North Carolina on how to kick a soccer ball. Who's that guy? Why is he the guy to teach you how to kick a soccer ball? Why does he know how to teach four-year-olds how to kick a soccer ball? We thought we should go to the world's best experts and develop the best activities so that you can teach your kids how to kick a soccer ball, even if you have absolutely no idea. So we're trusted resource. Second pain point is that it's no fun when moms and dads who don't know what they're doing sort of make it up. They look on YouTube, they come to the field, they've got a couple ideas. 70% of kids are dropping out of youth sports because it's not fun. That's the number one reason that they give by the age 13. So our view was, is we need to attack the dropout problem and the participation problem by making the coaching experience more fun. And so what we found is that all kinds of folks are jumping in behind us, all kinds of partners, because every professional sport has the same challenge. 90% of the time, your first experience with baseball, basketball, soccer, hockey, you name the sport, 80 to 90% of the coaches for that first season are moms and dads, and most of them do not have any relevant experience in the age group that they're coaching. And so what's the result of that? It's total luck of the draw if your kid ends up with a good coach or not. Total luck of the draw. So we want to take the luck out of that. We want to make it easier for coaches. And then lots of parents who aren't going to coach ask the question, what can I do to help my kid? I take my kid to practice. I see what goes on on the field. I'd love to be involved in some way. I don't have time to coach the whole team. I don't want that responsibility, but what can I do? And so the next evolution of Mojo will be not just for the parent who coaches, but it'll be for all the parents on the team. So right. you've got the one coach, you've got all the parents on the team, and then the evolution of our product, which is coming within the next 60 days, is we'll push this out to all the parents on the team so that every parent on the team has resources and tools and trusted materials to help them on that journey with their kid and to do fun stuff in the backyard or at the park or in the street to help their kid develop and grow. And we're doing this in every sport. And our thesis is that we can develop loyalty and love for Mojo because we're solving this big pain point for a lot of families. And that'll give us permission to do all kinds of things like sell soccer balls, like sell shin guards, like create camps and clinics and showcases. You know, youth sports 
is a deceptively large business. Lion Trees knows this, but many of your listeners probably don't. Youth sports is supposed to become about a $76 billion business globally by 2026. So it is a huge business that frankly is bigger than the professional sports leagues. And if there is no leading youth sports brand that seeks to capture the energy, the affection, the emotion of that wonderful period between four and 14, when it's supposed to be a joyful time. And that's what we're going for. Well, it's, we, we do appreciate it. It's a, and it is a massive market. And it, of course, is very fragmented. And that's been part of the issue in terms of how do you really monetize that whole area from a business perspective? I mean, certainly there are lots of different layers, lots of different players, but you have children essentially, and you have very much a grassroots type approach to it. You know, in full disclaimer, we are an investor in Mojo, Align Tree is. We're also significant investors and partners with Cal Ripken and the Ripken Experience, which runs baseball facilities in several markets for tournaments and clinics and camps. So we really do believe in this area and it's really exciting to see what you're building. And so Ben, the business model, just to be clear, you are not charging for Mojo, it's free correct? But the idea is that you'll eventually have affiliate sales of products and perhaps some advertising. So we launched in February just to test a couple of ideas. And we launched free for coaches with an upsell for some additional features just to see what the conversion looked like from coaches who started a free trial. And at the moment, we have in excess of 80% of the coaches who start that free trial are converting to a 1999 a year version of Mojo with some additional features. And so what we proved is that this is something that people want to buy. In the fall, when there's this big return to sport, we're changing the model and we're shifting. So it will be free for every coach. Any coach who wants to use the app, free. And then what we want to do is with the parents who come in, we actually want to sort of this is the game changer model. This is the app that Dick's bought. We want to provide- We sold that app, just to be clear. Thank you. So we want to provide essentially the game changer model, which is the coach is the node who influences the group, the 10 or 15 families. And then the families pay not only to unlock features for the coach, but the families pay for a variety of features that the families are going to want at home. So it's really the family who pays and it's the coach who gets it for free. Makes complete sense. How many people now at Mojo? And you've raised a Series A, right? We did. We're in Culver City. We have just opened this week our office for the full staff of 16. And we are moving quickly, expanding into new sports and expanding with new features. And who are some? Can you share some of the investors around this business? Sure. I'm happy to. Uh, Lion Tree. We've heard that. Yeah, thank you. Our lead investor is Alpha Edison here in Los Angeles, Nick Grauf is our board member, the managing partner of that firm. Tom Warner from the Fenway Sports Group, renowned television producer who's chairman of Liverpool Football Club and chairman of the Boston Red Sox, is one of our investors. We have Spencer Raskoff, former CEO of Zillow, is one of our investors. We have Jeffrey Katzenberg's Wonder Company is an investor. Brian Lee from Shoe Dazzle and LegalZoom and the Honest Company is an investor. So we have a fantastic collection of folks from sports, folks from business. We have Russell Wilson from the Seattle Seahawks is not only an investor, he's also a board member for Mojo. He's really committed to our cause. Russell happens to be not only a star quarterback for the Seahawks, but he's also an assistant little league coach in San Diego. 
and he knows the journey of the youth sports parent and really cares a lot about making that journey even better for parents everywhere. Uh, we've also got Julie Foudy, the legend from the U.S. Women's National Team, two-time World Cup champion, two-time Olympic gold medalist, is an investor and one of our founding athletes, as is Brandy Chastain from that team as well. So we've got a great group of institutions, strategics, and also athletes who are involved. Fantastic. Well, Ben, so much of your background is just fascinating, frankly. And I think one thing that particularly stands out, and I think it does for people of all ages, especially people that are a little deeper into their careers, is your journey. And by that, I mean, you're a very successful, high-powered Disney executive running the media business there. Obviously, there's the merger. You leave Disney. And most people, not all, most would become an investor perhaps or find their next media job or do lots of things. Not a lot of people would say at whatever age you are uh, that 57, I'm 57 <laughs> but that's what's wonderful, 57, not 25 in a garage in Silicon Valley or 35 in New York City or wherever you are that most people think of as startup CEOs. You decide to start your own business. You're going to raise venture capital, and go build this thing. I think it's such a great story because people always are trying to find their passions and scared to do these jumps and scared to take on that type of risk, and you're doing it. And I'd love to get your perspectives on that, the goods and the bads, and what ultimately drove you to do that, because I think it's really something that could energize people who are thinking of potentially doing the same thing, but might not feel they can or they're too old or whatever. Look, I feel like the luckiest guy because when I left the Walt Disney Company, I had had an amazing run, incredibly fortunate to work for that company first at ABC News and then at the Disney Television Group in Burbank. Really fortunate to work for Bob Iger, who was a remarkable mentor and leader whom I learned a lot from and with and alongside. And when the Fox merger happened, uh, the Fox group, the Fox executives essentially took charge of the television business. And it was clear that it was time to go. And uh, you're right, there were a bunch of different options. There are some traditional media options out there. There are some non-traditional options. And when I thought about the different paths and what to do with the next decade, what I got really excited about was this area of tremendous personal passion, which is youth sports. And combining everything I learned across 30 years in media and storytelling and journalism and writing books and telling stories, I just got really excited about trying to take all the stuff that I knew how to do and had, had, had learned as the co-chairman of the Hulu board for five years and things that I had learned, the Disney channels around the world and things that I had learned working at ABC News and in edit rooms and doing interviews. I wanted to take all that. And what I really wanted to do is I wanted to sort of step into the future into a green field, someplace that is not affected by declining ratings, someplace that is not affected by declining subscriptions, someplace that is not affected by all of the pressures that are attacking traditional or linear media. I wanted to walk into a green field where there was essentially no one competing. And I wanted to test myself and start from scratch and be part of the future and build something on a, a technology platform 
using some of my skills and I'm learning a lot because I'm a lifelong learner. And so the, the most important thing I did, and this is the one tip that, frankly, you and I had lunch in New York and you exhorted me to do this. And I took your advice seriously, as did a number of your peers in the investment world. You all said, go find a partner who can both expand on and deliver on your vision on the technology side. You said, go find a technology partner. And man, am I lucky because I was introduced to a young man named Reed Schaffner, who's 36, who was an elite soccer player in Florida who went to Duke, then went to Microsoft and went to Zynga where he ended up running the mobile gaming platform. And then he came to Scopely here in Los Angeles where he led product. And then he set out on his own to start a company in the HR tech space that he sold. And I happened to meet him at the very moment that his wife was about to give birth to his first son, Theo, who's now 23 months old and is going to turn two next month. And Reed locked arms with me to go build Mojo. First thing he did was he came up with a better name for the business. He thought that we really wanted to bring the magic to youth sports and Mojo captures sort of that magic, that power, that strength that people associate with sports, like he's got his mojo. And then the next thing he did was he hired an amazing team, just a fantastic group of developers and engineers. He's an entrepreneur at heart. And we like to say that sort of he's the pirate sales in the pirate Navy. And I'm sort of an admiral from the Royal Navy because I kind of had a career in traditional media. And the two of us have been working arm in arm for the past little more than a year to build this business. And so I think that of all the things that I did, leaving Disney, starting a new company, best thing was to partner with Reed and to surround myself with best and brightest, incredible team. On the content side, we have an award-winning content leader who's helping build a content named Daria Klenert. Came from traditional media, but then had a long and successful run in digital media. We've got aces all around. Got a great team. Great team, yeah. And so just going back to, you mentioned Bob Iger, who you obviously work closely with, as well as I'm sure other executives along your time at Disney ABC. What are some of, whether it's through Bob and I just finished his great bio, what are some of the greatest lessons perhaps you've learned in these stops or from people like Bob? Like if you had to impart all that time and some of that wisdom, what are some of those nuggets? I mean, I think the Bob's book, Ride of a Lifetime, is a terrific window into his secrets and to his stories. I can't do justice to all the things I learned working for him. He is a remarkably disciplined uh, leader who also has incredible curiosity and a range of interest. And it's hard ever to beat him to a new article. It's hard to beat him to a book. It's hard to beat him to a TV show or a movie because he's ravenous. He is constantly reading, learning, experiencing things, and trying to understand where culture is going, to understand where ideas are going. He's relentless. And I think that that's one of the qualities that I seek to emulate and that I really admire, his ravenous curiosity and also his incredible discipline. Bob always says that leaders do three things. And I think that it's a very simple list, but it's very hard to do. Bob says that leaders need to sort of express the vision for the organization. They need to express the strategy to achieve that vision. And then they need to establish and enforce the standards to meet that strategy and that vision. And if a leader can sort of see where you're going, explain how we're going to get there, and then hold the organization to the standard to get there, that leader is going to succeed. And I think that, again, 
that sort of leadership model, very simple leadership paradigm, but that he lived every day is really, again, very inspiring to me. I watched firsthand as he declared his vision for where the company would go in streaming. I was part of that initial push into streaming, and I saw him literally move a media company with almost half of its revenue and almost half of its OI, just sort of essentially overnight shift in the direction of prioritizing streaming. That was an incredible act of leadership and also an incredibly bold act for a legacy media company to pivot in that way. And obviously we've seen all the results and the incredible success of Disney Plus and ESPN Plus uh, and Hulu. It's incredible. Yeah, I've certainly seen the dividends now. What other media or now you're a tech executive, I guess, media or tech executives you admire just out of curiosity? Obviously you sat right with one of the greats in media with Bob, but uh, curious as to others you've looked to or met or even not met that you hold up as like, if I can be like that, that that's pretty cool. I think when you're at my stage of the game, I hate to sound like an old fogey. Yeah. By my stage of the game, you're sort of not looking at these young whippersnappers who are 30 and saying, I want to be like them when I grow up. That's a good point. Yeah. You do look at them and you're inspired by what they've built. You're amazed at what they've done. You're in awe of their entrepreneurial brilliance and their insights. And so I could pick and choose from all over the place. I'm not sure I want to grow up to be like any of them because some of them have broken the world. Some right. of them have wrecked the world. Some of them have caused all manner of chaos and disruption because of the unintended consequences of the incredible things that they built. So I'm not going to go there. I'll just say that you know my goal is to take everything I've learned from all the places I've been and the people I've been around and to try to apply them in a very focused way to a very particular and very, very exciting thing, which is you and I've talked about this. I just think sports is the most amazing teacher. You were an athlete, Alex, you know. Of course, look at me. <laughs> sports is an incredible teacher. And how do you give all kids a better chance, not to become Division One athletes, not to become Olympians, but how do you get every kid to experience the joy of sports, the benefits of sports, and develop all those habits that last a lifetime? And how do you make sure that those experiences early on are really, really great? And I think we can make it a lot better if you make it better, you can build a really valuable business. And that business not only can be extremely profitable, but it can also really change the world. One team, one kid, one family uh, at a time. Completely agree. It's amazing. The potential here is amazing. And that's why we're so excited to be working with you. Now, fun factor, and someone handed me a list of all the things you've done. And I touched on it early on, which is author. And you said you started as a journalist, but that doesn't quite do justice to what you did. Financial pundits will talk about hustle or side hustles. And I don't know how to characterize this as side hustle. I think you went in and out of doing a full-time and also writing books, but you've written a lot of books and some of them, including 2004, The Death and Life of Charlie St. Cloud actually became a full major motion picture starring America's hero, Zac Efron. Tell us a little about those journeys. And it seems you haven't picked up the pen in a while. So perhaps you're, you're waiting to finish this recent journey to pen your next book. But this is a pretty significant collection of books you've written and how you balance that and why you maybe didn't do that full-time or you kind of reached the apex with making a movie. I don't know. Alex, there's a good reason I don't do it full-time is because I would starve and I have a family to feed. <laughs> the other reason I don't do it full-time is it's agony and I don't have the gift of being, it doesn't just flow. It doesn't just come flying out onto the page for me. Yes, I've written a bunch of books. I wrote one under a pseudonym back in 1996 about the Atlanta Olympics and the terrorism attack on the Atlanta Olympics. I decided to try to write a techno thriller just as a kind of a giant crossword puzzle. I wrote this book and it was so bad that my 
then agent Joni Evans, the great, the one and only Joni Evans said, I forbid you from putting your name on this. You have to put a pseudonym on this because you don't want to be anywhere near this book <laughs> for the rest of your life because it's so bad. And I think she's probably right. And I think that, that was really good advice. And it was published under a different name that I will not reveal. I've written a few more. I wrote a book called The Man Who Ate the 747, which I wrote nights and weekends when I was working at NBC News and used to spend weekends or holidays out in Superior, Nebraska, which is south of Lincoln in a small farming community where the story took place. And I had a great time going there. I have roots in Nebraska. My mom is from there and I have a great fondness for the Midwest and uh, had a wonderful time writing that book. I then wrote a book called Charlie St. Cloud that you mentioned. And that book was set in Marblehead, Massachusetts, sailing community and I loved going to Marblehead to do the research on that book and learning to sail, not really learning to sail, more like learning to be ballast because I was such a bad sailor that they just sort of put me in the boat and moved me from side to side. We raced once and uh, I retired undefeated from sail racing. I'll never do that again. Uh, and then I did a book 10 years ago called The Survivors Club, a nonfiction book about the secrets of the world's greatest survivors, like men and women left for dead on Mount Everest men and women attacked by mountain lions, men and women fighting multiple stage four cancer diagnoses. Just what are the secrets of people who have overcome unbelievable adversity? And what can you and I learn from them in dealing with the challenges that we face every single day? And of course, I'm going to ask, what are those secrets? Give us one or two, perhaps. Oh, man, I'd say the two big ones that come through time and time again. And I traveled all over the world and interviewed incredible people, people who walked away from plane crashes, people who walked away from shipwrecks. And I think there were two things that always stood out. One was what called situational awareness, which is what the military teaches, which is, do you have a realistic understanding and appreciation of the threats around you? And do you have a plan A and a plan B to deal with them? So in other words, are you alert to the challenges that you face, like eyes wide open? And do you have an escape route and do you have a backup route? And that kind of situational awareness, that's actually something very hard to do. A lot of people blithely go through life, blithely end up in these situations and don't really realize they're in trouble before it's too late. And they certainly don't have a plan A or a plan B. So situational awareness is like literally the first thing that they teach you in Navy survival school and Air Force survival school where I went to research that book. And then the other thing that is really crucial is adaptability. That's the secret of life on Earth for 3.8 billion years. Creatures that adapt to new circumstances survive, and creatures that fail to adapt perish. In survival situations, people who are adaptable, who have situational awareness, who see what's happening, and then who adapt their attitude and their actions to that new threat, who literally change course, who do new things, who move in new directions, who have new ideas, Adaptability is unbelievably important. Again, much harder to do than it is to talk about because a lot of people can see the situation, can see the threat, but they don't change their actions. And so here's a good example in a plane crash or in a plane emergency, research has shown that about 10% of people immediately leap into action and know what to do. This is called the rule of 10 10%. Kind of see the problem and start moving to deal with the problem. Say the engine's on fire on the wing, they know to pull the door open and escape the other door the other way. 
80% of us sit around and wait for someone to tell us what to do. So 10% do the right thing. 80% of us literally engage in what's called behavioral inaction. We don't do anything. We literally wait for a person in a position of authority to say, exit now. Problem in a plane emergency is often the people who are in a position of authority, flight attendants, pilots are either distracted or incapacitated. And so no one says this is what you're supposed to do. And so a lot of people literally are found in their seats, seatbelts fastened, didn't do anything. We're waiting for someone to tell them what to do. And then 10%, 10 10-80-10, 10% engage in what you would call negative, counterproductive, self-destructive behavior. The wrong word is panic because panic isn't the right frame. Panic actually means behaving in a way that is not well-grounded, hysterical way without any grounding. The problem is if you're in a burning jet and you panic, you actually aren't panicking. You're actually responding kind of with a well-grounded fear, which is there's a fire in an airplane. And so about 10% actually do counterproductive or negative things. The key is to either find yourself in the 10% who do the right thing or to move yourself from the 80 and get to the 10 and to do the right thing. And there are a whole bunch of techniques that I discovered and learned and, and wrote about, about how to get yourself into a position where you're less likely to freeze or not know what to do or wait for someone to tell you what to do in those situations so that you can adapt and get out alive figuratively. It relates to business, by the way, Alex. One of the things that I observed when I was at Disney, one of the things that I observed here in the startup mojo is situational awareness, unbelievably important. We're going into a pandemic. What does that mean for our business? What does that mean for our survival? We need to adapt to these circumstances. We can't keep doing exactly what we're doing or we will perish. We need to adapt. We need to change. We need to pivot. We need to move quickly. We need to adjust our attitudes and actions in response to these real threats around us that are happening to the business, that are happening in society. And so I think that all those lessons from the Survivors Club, which is the name of that book, are very relevant actually in daily business and daily life. Absolutely. Fascinating. So that's the Survivors Club. That's the name of the book. So check it out on Amazon. We'll, we'll add to your author credits and uh, book sales here right on Kindred Cast. Just putting on your media hat for a second, there's been a flurry of deals of late. We at Linetree have been fortunate to participate. Uh, AT&T and the Time Warner spin into Discovery, news of uh, MGM Amazon, we advised to MGM. It's been a nice run here. Ben, what's the crystal ball around this? You mentioned your time as co-chair of Hulu, the Walt Disney Company. You've seen these transactions. What's going to transpire here? I know you're on the side here a bit, but I'd be very curious to get your perspective. What's the landscape look like? Is this a relentless drumbeat of consolidation? Is this all meant to tech fight against a few now big giant content players? I'm just curious as how you feel the landscape will continue to evolve here. Alex, I have a lot of humility about this and must confess that I've spent most of the last year head down trying to build a startup and trying to learn as much as I can about youth sports and consumer-facing technology and building a platform. I have a rooting interest for Disney because I'm, you know, friends are there and I'm a shareholder. And I have a rooting interest for traditional media in a lot of these situations because I think there are great people who work there. They're tremendous assets. There's great IP. I can't tell you what really this looks like and who the winners are. I observe there are a couple of themes that just sort of jump out to me that are of interest and that are, I think, long-term themes. Theme one is that businesses 
that don't have a need to make money in entertainment will find entertainment a useful vehicle to drive another business. So there you got Amazon looking at the James Bond assets thinking, hey, this is a nice $8.6 billion purchase to help us drive our Prime subscriptions. And the real purpose of a Prime subscription is not to watch videos. The real purpose of the Prime subscription is the Prime subscription in and of itself and to buy more toilet paper and books and groceries. And so I think that 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 theme of businesses seeing entertainment as a vehicle to accelerate or to drive other businesses is both fascinating and creates all kinds of crazy and upside down incentives. Why would anyone spend half a billion dollars on a Lord of the Rings television series that does not have a script, that does not have any talent attached because $500 million doesn't really matter to you that much. And because your larger interest is not about recouping $500 million from the entertainment business, it's about recouping $500 million and then some from another business, say Amazon's core business in going direct to consumer. That's a trend that feels like it's going to accelerate. It's a trend that I think that you see with Apple where Apple's investment in content, it's not entirely clear how they benefit beyond the desire to create a rich ecosystem where getting that content comes through your device. And they've got more than a billion devices around the world and they're in a device business and a bunch of other businesses like subscriptions, but the content is an accelerant, almost a marketing item for sort of some of the core businesses. So I think that's one theme. Second theme is not original or profound, but I think it's an observation that Anita Elbersee from Harvard Business School, your alma mater, points out in her book, Blockbuster, from must be now a decade ago. We all know about Blockbuster IP, Blockbuster movies. We all know the sort of Disney, Alan Horn, Bob Iger strategy of tentpole movies driving tentpole results. One of the little noticed chapters in that book and the little noticed sections in that book was about superstar tentpole talent. And I think they're one of the biggest themes that we're going to see is that the race for the talent in the entertainment business will become more fierce than ever. There's the IP battle, which is I'm trying to get a hold of James Bond. But then there's also the battle to get a hold of Greg Berlanti, for instance, at Warner Brothers, who's one of the most prolific producers, or the battle to get great producers. The thing about the entertainment business is it's like sports in that each generation does not produce an infinite number of superstar baseball players. Each generation does not produce an exponential number of soccer players. Each generation has a handful. And it doesn't matter how many clubs you make, how many teams there are. Major League Baseball can expand. The NBA can expand. You can do all these things. But expansion of clubs and franchises does not increase the number of superstar talent. That talent is sort of fixed unless the system changes below it to sort of find them. But really, you're going to have an unbelievable competition for a very limited number of really superstar players. And that you're seeing in these crazy bidding wars for big talent like Shonda Rhimes to Netflix or like Ryan Murphy Murphy, to Netflix. And then what happens is that as you pay them more and more at the very top, that really crushes the middle, really squeezes the middle and creates a world of haves and have nots in that space. And I think that's a trend to watch. 
Ben, I love the insights. You're humble, as you put it, but certainly incredibly thoughtful about these things. And those thematics make complete sense. One more thing about your background, and I touched on this in the opening, is that I believe between you and your sister, at least this is what this paper says, you're the first brother-sister pair of Rhodes Scholars. Is that correct? It is true that we were, and I know that it made my late mother very proud and it made my late father very proud. I will tell you that I'm following in my big sister's footsteps. She's the smart, successful Sherwood. Love to talk about her. Love any chance to talk about her. She right now is at the White House and is the president's Homeland Security Advisor. She's got her hands full with all manner of challenges right now. At the time in 1986, when I was lucky to get a Rhodes Scholarship, women had only been eligible for the Rhodes Scholarship for about a decade. The scholarship had only been awarded to men from about 1902 to about 1976. My sister was one of the first women in 1981 to be awarded the scholarship, and I followed her about five years later. So just in terms of history, I just want to point out that it's not exactly like there was a large pool and a lot of years for that to have happened. We were very lucky that that happened, but I just want to put that into the right context. Speaking of parenting parents and coaching and youth, what's one great takeaway from your parents in terms of what was in the water or at the dinner table that inspired you and your sister to be the successes that you obviously became? Wow. I think that there was an incredible amount of love and there was a huge amount of belief. And I think that it was built into our family that we had gifts and we needed to make the most of them and gifts were privileged and we needed to make the most of it and to give back in some way. And I chose journalism. My big sister, Liz Sherwood Randall, chose public service. Uh, she's in the international relations area and national security area. And I picked journalism. I think that the one other thing, just in terms of parenting, was that our parents were incredibly good listeners and they let us pursue whatever it was that we were passionate about. When I wanted to be a magician, my parents allowed me to pursue magic and they encouraged me to pursue magic. And I had a brief and somewhat unsuccessful childhood career as a magician doing birthday party magic until I ran into a heckler at an 11 year old's birthday party that I could not handle. And I lost my temper and quit magic on the spot and never returned to the stage until my youngest son, Charlie, wanted me to perform at his birthday party a few years ago. And so I brushed up on my magic and I have returned to the stage doing magic again. But there was about a 42-year interval in my magic career. But that's the kind of thing that my parents were really, really supportive Just let about. you guys go for whatever you're passionate about and support Let you go. Yeah, really let go. us go. Well, they didn't put magic on here, so we'll have to do that in the second podcast. All right. So, Ben, we're coming down on time here. The business is called Mojo. It is revolutionizing how parents and kids learn youth sports, how we can coach better, how we can learn better, do it all obviously from our pockets and our phones. I think this is going to be a very, very cool business. It already is, and it has so many ways to grow. And I know you have some big partnerships coming up, which we're eagerly awaiting. We'll stay tuned here. I'd like to do a little thing at the end of these things, just a quick taste of pop culture and what people like you are doing. So just a few quick hits here, Ben. What are you streaming right now? What do you recommend? <laughs> I just finished Dogs of Berlin on Netflix, okay. which is a German police procedural that is really, really good, riveting. And I, I really recommend it. I would say that the soccer, so it involves the murder of a German soccer star who is of Turkish ancestry. And it gets into neo-Nazis. It gets into the Turks. 
and Muslims in Germany, and it is really, really well done. I think the Dogs of Berlin. Dogs of Berlin, really good. Light one, light one before bedtime. It's like if Fauda and Ted Lasso married. Uh, (laughs) By the way, Ted Lasso, patron saint of Mojo. I just want to point that out. We love Ted Lasso. Okay, okay. Uh, We believe and believe just like Ted Lasso. All right. Get Jason Sudeikis here. We're calling your name. We loved, we loved, we loved Ted Lasso. All right, what what is a podcast you're listening to or recommend? Podcast that I'm listening to, I'm like everybody. I listen to The Daily, which I get a big kick out of. Times Daily, yeah. Listen to anything that Michael Lewis will do. Great, Uh, Pushkin Industries, yeah. And I listen to everything that Malcolm Gladwell does. Also Pushkin. Laundry's an investor. We didn't coordinate that. My old buddy from graduate school, Jacob Weisberg, as you know, is one of yeah, the founders fantastic. of Pushkin. And finally, a book. Speaking of books, maybe I know your books, but let's have some other book you're reading that you recommend. Well, books that I'm reading, I will tell you, there's a couple that I'm reading. I noticed that Jason Matthews, who was a CIA agent, passed away. I had never read any of Jason Matthews' books, so I just downloaded Jason Matthews. The other thing that I would say in terms of books, I'd say that I'm obsessed with a book by a woman named Elizabeth Collingham called The Hungry Empire. Lizzie Collingham is her name. The Hungry Empire is the book. She basically takes a meal from each of the British colonies and explains how the British Empire was born and pursued food and explains British empire through the lens of food. Hmm. When I was at Oxford for a few years, I studied the history of the British empire and uh, became really interested in it, traveled all over the world, visiting former British colonies. And so her take on food in the British empire is fantastic. Very, very cool. What's the name of that book? It's called The Hungry Empire by Elizabeth Collingham. All right. Well, I promised I would do this, which is to say, Ben Sherwood, you've done it all. (laughs) Rhodes Scholar, (laughs) media executive, author, journalist, news producer, and now tech executive and entrepreneur with, of course, Mojo. We loved having you on KindredCast, Ben. Thanks so much for doing this. Alex, thank you for the invitation. It's great to be on KindredCast. I think that it is a high honor to have made the top 150 first guests on KindredCast. It's a high Uh, bar. You've done it. You've done it all. All right. Take care, Ben. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.